Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. I always stress that I work on uh, Black communities within Black Twitter because there are a number of different communities. And as I've said for many years, there are many ways to be Black. If we hope to survive in this digital age, we have to think critically about the messages we consume. Someone created those messages for a reason. Let's find out why. Sometimes we just have to ask, what the media? I'm Megan Lynch, virtual consumer editor at KMOX Radio. I'm joined by Julie Smith, author of Master the Media, How Teaching Media Literacy Can Save Our Plugged-In World. In this episode, what is Black Twitter? You could be biracial, you could be black and not from the U.S., you're black and disabled, you're black and queer. There are all of these different ways to live and experience blackness, and I think that's one of the things that's so beautiful about black Twitter. We talk with Meredith Clark, journalist and scholar. Clark is an associate professor in the School of Journalism and the Department of Communication Studies at Northeastern University. And so I always define uh, Black Twitter as a network of cultural, uh, culturally linked communicators using the platform to talk about issues of concern to Black people and Black communities. Um, but then the very unscientific definition of Black Twitter is Black Twitter is Black people using Twitter in very specific ways. And so you see, right, the same sort of uh, language and the references that you would see in everyday life. Um, being rendered in a digital form and, and making use of all the things that Twitter offers in terms of communicating. So being able to communicate with memes and uh, with visual references and with text-based references that sort of mimic the way that folks talk in their away from keyboard lives. You know, it's, it's funny, Meredith, I spend a lot of time doing workshops on media literacy and so many people complain to me about social media platforms and how harmful and dangerous they are. And yet this, these platforms have a way of really building communities with people that you wouldn't otherwise normally get to meet. And I think that that is some, such a positive thing that very few people really talk about. Yeah, I think it's it's really easy to get myopic about the impact of technology, whatever that technology is, um, and especially with social media, since social media is, of course, people powered. But the the thing about these technologies is that it's all in the way that you use it, right? Um, how you curate your feed and what shows up in your feed using the controls that you have to make sure that you see the things that you are interested in seeing, whether it's new information that you otherwise might not learn about, 
or things that you are a diehard fan of, you know about, and you want to make sure you're connected to people um, who are also interested in those things. Like it is all, well, I won't say all, but it is primarily up to the user what kind of experience they have on the platform. The algorithm only does so much. Tell us about the connections that you have seen generated through what is called Black Twitter. So as I'm working on the last chapter of my book, um, it's really interesting to go back and look at the people that I've talked to over the years and what has happened for them. So there are some folks who were regular everyday people when I first talked to them some years ago. Now they are authors with books on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, they are collaborating with one another. But one of the most interesting uh, sort of developments that I've seen over the years is how people have met their partners on Twitter. And that is a lot of fun to watch. I mean, there are actual human beings, like children walking around because people establish relationships on Twitter um, through everything. There's one couple that I interviewed. They met because he did something every Saturday night, the questions, they called it. And you just post these random questions that people would respond to. You know, you post the number of the question and your answer, and it's everything like um, which one of these different types of pie should be banned forever to how do you feel about these kind of relationships? And because he did that and he had this regular presence, uh, this woman who lived in a completely different state had no connection to him whatsoever. They didn't know any of the same people, none of that. But because she followed those questions that other people were responding to, they developed a relationship over time and they just got married last year. Uh, and so being able to see those relationships form has been a lot of fun, as has seeing those relationships that form out of more dire circumstances, seeing the ways that people really show up for one another, how they're creating and recreating the ideas of mutual aid networks via social media technologies has been um, just really exhilarating to watch. I love the idea of how you say that we're responsible for the social media experience that we have. Um, what would you say to people who are still skeptical about the connections that they can make on social media? What is different about those connections that we make on those platforms compared to uh, connections that we might make in person? Yeah, so the connections that we make in person um, come with their own different kind of baggage, whereas the relationships that we're forming online, with the exception of what might be exposed online, uh, are really about our own creation. You know, online, and this exists in a number of different forms, whether you are a gamer or a person who's using a social networking site, uh, it goes back to that old New Yorker cartoon, you know, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog, no one knows who you are on the internet. So you can be whomever you want to be. And in some cases, people have exploited that and they've catfished people. But in others, people use it in order to express vulnerabilities that they might not be able to express in other places. Like one of the people that I first talked to in doing this research said that the reason that she got on Twitter was because she could go and openly talk about what she was going through with her divorce. Whereas she couldn't do that on the platforms like Facebook because all her family and friends were there and her husband or now ex-husband's family was there. And so you can't talk openly about uh, just the raw emotion that you're going through with separating such a significant relationship. And so I tell people, 
that, you know, if you've got these great relationships in your physical life, that's fantastic. You could think of this as another way to connect with those people. So like I keep up um, sometimes with the things that my brother's doing, he's gone back to school. So I can see some of those activities. You can establish new relationships. Like if I go to a city where I know that there are people that I've been tweeting with, they live there. I might ask them for recommendations on what to see, what to do, where to go eat, maybe even to meet up if they're open to that kind of thing. Um, and then you can also have these relationships with folks that you will never meet. You know, that is that is just not the point. But if I want to chat about the Real Housewives of Potomac, and I am all in on the Real Housewives, <laughs> You know, I'd sort of be embarrassed to tell my colleagues or some of uh, the people that I know offline about how I am so invested in these shows. But I know that there are people online who know exactly what I'm talking about. If I make references to past seasons, they are there. And those are my folks, right? That is that is my neighborhood of people that I can connect with and feel like I'm at home around this particular show. And so there are a number of different kinds of relationships that you can make with your choices in social media use. My sister used to say that Facebook was for people she already knew. Twitter was for people she wished she knew. Yeah, that, I think that's a great way to look at it. Yeah, excellent. Beyond the connections, have you found that this community of Black Twitter has created uh, some power and the ability uh, to have a unified voice when it comes to social issues and, and other other things that you might see on Twitter. Absolutely. Um, and I always stress that I work on uh, Black communities within Black Twitter because there are a number of different communities. And as I've said for many years, there are many ways to be Black, right? There are uh, you could be biracial, you could be Black and not from the U.S., you're Black and disabled, you're Black and queer. There are all of these different ways to live and experience Blackness, and I think that's one of the things that's so beautiful about Black Twitter, because we generally, when we talk about Black community, we talk about it in a singular sense. And in some cases, there are things that tie Black folks together in a unified sense, right? So when we say Black Lives Matter, we absolutely mean that Black lives matter, that because of uh, the color of our skin and the way that we are seen in this particular society, there are some struggles that we have in common. And you can see those sort of commonalities. And you hear us talk about those in a unified voice. At the same time, you also hear people complicate that unity by saying this is another part of the experience that isn't really focused on in the same way. You know, when we think about Blackness, maybe we don't think about being Black and being an undocumented person in this country, or we don't think about being Black and being trans. Uh, and so that we need to be expansive in how we are talking about community and notions of community by recognizing that there are actually many communities that are having these conversations all at the same place and in the same time. One of the things we talk about in class when we talk about social media platforms is that we can use these platforms as either a mirror or a window. Mm -hmm. We can use the platforms to have everything reflected back to us that looks like us and sounds like us and eats like us and talks like us, or we can use it as a window into other people's experiences. Yeah. How important is it to you that people use these platforms as a window to understand how other people are experiencing the world? 
I think that's a really important idea and notion. And I think it, um, along with it needs to come, you know, some of the practical things that we would think about if we were looking at someone's life through a window. So I am one of these people, I was raised in the South um, and raised by folks who were raised with older people. And so they had some very particular things, etiquette around how you kept house. When the sun went down, for instance, you drew the curtains because you didn't want people to be able to look directly into your home because someone looking in through a window is only going to see, you know, what's in front of that window. They don't hear what's going on. They don't have the context for what they're seeing through the window. Um, and so they have a very peculiar picture of a reality but it is the reality as they are able to interpret it from the other side of that window. It's so the reality that's presented. Right, it's the reality right. that's presented, but especially by people who may not know that they're performing for someone else, that essentially what they're doing is seeing as a performance. So we have to think about ethically what we are seeing unfold when we're looking at social media as a window into another world. One, we are seeing what people are comfortable talking about in a public space, even if they are not thinking actively about exactly how public that space is. I mean, Twitter, if we want to use the window metaphor or analogy, you know, it's like having all of the traffic in Times Square pass by your living room window and see what's going on in your house, whatever without, you decide to put out there. Without, yeah, without the context. Without the context. And at the same time, we also want to remember that while we're looking, there's only um, there's only so far that we should go. You know, we we think about uh, I don't want to get too theoretical, but Goffman talks about the the territories of the body and the uh, properties of the self and how we have to have a sense of privacy within ourselves. And I think that extends to social media with something like being able to look into the window of someone else's world by recognizing that there's a time when you look away and there's a time where perhaps you don't repeat or recycle or retweet, if you will, what you're seeing in this particular space. That as the adage goes, everything is not for everyone. So you can look at it, you might be able to see it, but that does not mean that it's something for you to directly participate in. For someone who might want to learn what the experience is for those Black communities you talked about, then from what you're saying, that someone would have to be really careful about obviously putting things in context and then maybe not putting ourselves on top of that if we were to share things. Absolutely. So being really careful, I think you you said it perfectly. Um, what you see and recognizing that there is context that you may not have, you may be able to get some of it by searching back through old tweets or paying attention to how other people are interacting with what you're seeing online. But you're also going to have to step away and do some research around why someone might feel a certain way or why they might make a particular pronouncement and then come to your own conclusions about it, right? Because this is just something that you've been able to observe. If you haven't experienced it yourself, then you've got to take from a few different sources to really be able to make sense of it. And I think that's essential. It's one thing that I think we tend to get away from. We, we forget that we need additional context to make sense of what we're seeing online. It's the same thing like um, 
and I, I don't want to make this one-to-one -one analogy, but if we were to take what we see on TV and consider it as real as factual, even if it were just the news, right? Exactly. <laughs> then we're getting a skewed picture, only part of the picture, a picture that has been shaped and warped and reshaped um, for our own consumption. That is what a lot of folks do when they look at social media. They consume in the very same way. And we cannot consume what we see on social media in that way. I'm really curious about the course you teach mm -hmm. and who takes that course? What kind of diversity do you have in those classes? So I've taught this course at uh, two universities now. It was at the University of Virginia before I came here. The course is Black Twitter and Black Digital Culture because I recognize that everything that happens on Black Twitter also has connection to other spaces, technologically speaking, and in offline, away from keyboard life. Um, it's been really interesting. Over the four years that I've taught this course, I noticed that in the fall semester, it was about 50% uh, white students and 50% students of color. And within that 50% of students of color, you could have anywhere from uh, 20 to 30% being Black students. And then in the spring semester, it would be overwhelmingly students of color. And then my white students were in the minority. And I think what happens is that the students who were taking the course in the fall talked about it. And so more students of color would find out about it and they'd come take it in the spring. And that happened every year until this year. And this year, I only have four students we had some technological issues, and so people didn't know about it with enrollment. Um, they are all Black women, but they have very different experiences. There is a, a biracial student. There are students who uh, identify as queer. There are students from different regions of the country. So even then, you get to see the diversity of the kind of students who are interested in a course like this. I love, Meredith, how you were talking about all of these media messages being constructions, because that is exactly what we try to teach in media literacy class. So you are speaking to the choir here, and I am loving it. Yes, we have to recognize that. I, I think my students are, are kind of, their minds are a little bit blown when we talk about, when we break down exactly how much of what we see, whether it is in news media, in documentary film, in entertainment media, on social media, how these things are actually constructed, how even their interactions with one another are constructions. Uh, when they really get into the nitty gritty of that, they're like, oh, wow, none of this is, is quite what I, I thought it was. And well, I it, it, it changes the relationship they have with it. It makes them aware. So you have a book coming out. Who mm -hmm. are you hoping reads this book? Wow, that's a great question. Um, well, first, I hope the people who helped me write it read it. Um, I do what is referred to as collaborative ethnography, so study of culture um, in collaboration with the people who make the culture. So I hope that those people whose stories are reflected in it, whose narratives are retold or amplified through it, I hope they read it first. Um, after that, I hope folks who have heard of Black Twitter um, and remember some of those moments. I hope that they read it. So it's kind of a reminder of what they've seen and what they've experienced and maybe some exposure to what they didn't necessarily know about because it, it didn't come down their timeline. And then I hope people who are curious about uh, Black culture online read it, no matter where you are. You know, one big dream of mine is for this book uh, to be translated into other languages because I definitely want to see the cross-cultural communication 
of what this particular experience is like. We saw how powerful protests that were amplified by Black Twitter were in 2012, 2013, all the way through 2020. We saw those reverberate around the world. There's something there that resonates with people who experience similar oppressions and believe in the struggle for liberation. And so I hope that those people throughout the world are also able to read this book and see something about their lives and their experiences reflected there as well. That's Dr. Meredith Clark, founding director of the College of Arts, Media and Design's Center for Communication, Media Innovation and Social Change at Northeastern University. What the Media is produced by Odyssey St. Louis from the studios of KMOX Radio. I'm Megan Lynch with Julie Smith. Our executive producer is Beth Coglin. We invite you to visit KMOX.com for more on our media literacy project. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.